So today we are very happy to be joined with this a very distinguished panel uh, that represents uh, several different generations. And we're going to try to sort of unpack, uh, if we can, uh, what it means to have uh, mentors in our life. We believe this is so crucial, so important. The enemy wants to isolate you because if he can isolate you, he can destroy you. And the key is to keep the right voices in your life, the right people at your table. And so we want to talk a little bit about that. And this panel that is here, um, they have legacy ministries, legacy families. And so how do we impart? How do we empower the next generation? I want to start with um, Bishop uh, Billy Hale. What a powerful message, the making of a man of God. Life-changing, Bishop. Life-changing. You built an incredible uh, church in Denver, a landmark tabernacle, one of our signature churches in all of the United Pentecostal Church. You've been a voice of prayer and faith uh, for my generation. Uh, you've been a district superintendent for three decades in the District of Colorado. Um, you've been um, on the general board of the United Pentecostal Church, now going on four decades. And uh, I just want to ask you this question. How do we successfully pass the baton of this gospel to the young ministers and the young adults of the next generation? Brother Myers, thank you for this forum. I really feel that it's so vital and it, it impresses me that y'all schedule this type of thing. I, I've thought about this. I, I thought about how that things were passed down from me. Uh, the baton was given to me. Some of the great men in our movement that walk in streets of gold right now uh, were my mentors, Brother J.T. Pugh. Uh, I spent two full days and I think it was two nights in Dallas, Texas, where he wanted a handful of preachers to come, and he wanted to pour into them. He wanted me to be one of those preachers, thank God. And uh, I realized that this, to pass it on, uh, I looked in the scriptures. Now, folks, you've got to understand, this, this, this church is not our church. This is God's business. This is God's church. So he has the vision for his church. And it's right here. It's right here. So when when the Apostle Paul, and I, this is what I'm referring to, when the Apostle Paul heard from the Holy Ghost that this was his last time to be with the elders there at Ephesus and all the vicinity. The scripture says he called the elders together and uh, he, he spoke to them. And you would think that he's, he's going to tell them this wonderful, deep discussion. But here's what he said. He said, you know the life that I've lived. This is what I'm sharing with you. You know, I wasn't saved. I, 
let me see if I can read it right now. And from Miletus, this is Acts 20 and 17. And from Miletus, let me see if I can read my light here. I'm sorry, I got my glasses on. He, uh, he sent and called the elders of the church, and when they were come to him, he said unto them, You know from the very first day that I came uh, unto Asia, and after what manner I have been with you in all seasons. He said, you know my example. You know, and he, he began to refer to his uh, own personal life. Consecration went down through it. And this is what great men of God that influenced me did. I, I heard Brother Kilgore, and he would, he would talk. Uh, I, I was on the platform. Him, him and I shared the platform in a minister's conference, his last time that he preached uh, a conference. Same thing with Brother J.T. Pugh. I was a partner with them. Uh, on the platform preaching that night, both of us preaching his last time. And it just seemed like it was something about it. But these men shared how they lived. It was more than how they preached. They didn't, they didn't talk about, and Paul didn't, about my miracles, my sermons. You remember that sermon I preached? So on. No, no, no. He said, I want you just to remember my life and the way I lived. And this is what I want to transfer to you. Now, you've got to understand that back then, and I don't want to take up a lot of time, but back then, no microphones, no choirs, no buildings. Are you listening? No buildings, nothing. And how did they reach? How did... In just about three months, Paul left Thessalonica, and he had elders already established. How do you do that? You do it by, when you live it, the, the living example puts authority to the words that's spoken. And so people see that example, and that's how I feel transferring the baton. So good, it's, uh, just letting people know your life, the life story. Amen. So good. So good. Uh, Pastor Joel Urshan, uh, your ministry, it represents excellence and anointing for this generation. And uh, I, I want to say this because you're one of my very best friends. You're a greater Christian than you are a preacher. And I admire that so much in you. Uh, Brother Urshan pastors the great Tree of Life Church in uh, Cincinnati, Ohio. Comes from a great legacy of, of ministries and ministers. The question I want to ask you, Brother Urshan, is what does your generation need from elders to be equipped for ministry excellence? You know, it, it's a, um, that's a great question, uh, too, because I think, we have to be equipped as elders, uh, and that's, you're an elder to somebody, uh, and, uh, and, and of course, eldership has to do with spiritual maturity as well, um, 
But I think the thing that we have to do as, as elders, we have to maybe not be detached from that moment in our own life when we have questions. We, uh, through life, through living for the Lord, God reveals things to us. He helps us to understand better. We, we won't know it all until we stand in his presence and see him as he is. That's when we will understand it better by and by. So we're continually learning. But we know some things that we didn't used to know. And I think it's important to not be detached from that time of life where the questions dominated our thoughts. Um, so that when a question is posed to us, we can have an honest dialogue, an honest conversation, and give acknowledgement that, yes, this is a question. And I remember what it was like when I had this question, so let me walk you through my journey. I remember when I was uh, young, my brother and I were witnessing to some friends. Uh, we this, this is really what developed our call to the ministry of preaching was that we got into the Word of God together. He and I would sit at the kitchen table and say, okay, you go study the oneness of God. I'm going to go study the infilling of the Holy Ghost and we'll come back and compare notes. So we would do that for 45 minutes. We'd pray and study and come back. And, and many times we came back with revelation. But I remember in witnessing to our friends the day that they showed me Matthew 28, 19. And it rocked my world. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. I was totally taken aback. I went to my father and I said, Dad, I got bad news. <laughs> I said, I, 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 you might want to get Grandpa on the phone and, and let him in on this bad news. And uh, he said, what's going on? And I said, Matthew 28, 19, what do, we, what do we do about this? And I'll never forget when he, this little smile came across his face. And the smile was him saying, I've had this question before. And I know the answer to this question. There was such a reassurance to me to know that I wasn't the only one who had this question. And then he began to explain to me that the name is Jesus Christ. And that's the name that we're baptized into. That the apostles were fulfilling what Jesus gave them as a mandate in the Great Commission. And it was, I think that's important, that this generation has answers or questions and we've all had questions, and it's okay to have questions, and it's important to have questions. Bishop Hale spoke the other night at our communion service uh, prior to the meeting, and he brought out Psalm 22. And when David asked the question, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? What a, what a, what a, what a frightening question that is. But David asked it, and he was safe in asking it. Jesus asked it. And he asked it while he was up on the cross. So the key to asking questions is make sure that you're crucified with Christ when you ask. Ask the toughest of questions with an open heart, an open Bible, an open mind. And, and the elders can come along and say, hey, that question's okay. I've been there before. I remember what it felt like to have that question. Let's sit down and talk about this answer together. Amen. That's so good. Thank you, Brother Urshan. Awesome. Pastor David Elms, love you very much. Pastor of the great Cathedral of Pentecost, Fort Lauderdale, Florida. 
co-founder, co-sponsor of the Winds Conference. Thank you for your heart for young ministers. What an amazing family you have, too. One of your... Scarlett is your daughter, and I know you have all of your children. All four are in ministry, and many of them you see up here on the platform. Of course, Sister Elm singing, and just an amazing group. Uh, the Bible talks about Elisha requesting a uh, double portion from his mentor, Elijah. What does that double portion look like, and is it proper for the next generation to request that. When we look back and we see these great pillars and pioneers of Pentecost, is it okay for this generation to say, I want twice as much? What a beautiful statement that is that anyone would say, I want that and more. Brother Myers, I love you and I cherish your family all the legacy that you bring to the table as well. And I cherish our friendship. It was said that he who only knows the book does not know the book. The power of the church in the New Testament is conveyed through what is known as the ecclesia, which means called out assembly. Scripture talks about forsake not the assembling of yourselves together so much the more as you see that day approaching. We know the connection between Elijah and Elisha was a substantial covenant where Elisha said, wherever you go, I will not leave you. But we have those Old Testament connections, but what about the new? If we don't know that the kingdom of God is built on relationships and connections and communions. Sometimes people think communion is just when we take the elements of the body of the Lord. No, communion is togetherness. It's assembling. All love is local. Will you say that? All love, All love. is local. Is local. That means this global love doesn't exist. Hmm. It's a theoretical construct. Oh, I love everybody in the world. Well, do you love those that you live with? Do you love those who know what you do on Saturday late at night? Because the entirety of the Bible is written on this connectivity one to another. And when you study the word of God, here's the thing. Peter is such a substantial part of the Bible, especially in the New Testament. No one is mentioned more than Peter except Jesus. Jesus, Peter is mentioned the most of anyone else in the entirety of the New Testament. Now, Mark was the mentee of Simon Peter. Mark was not an apostle, and yet many believe that Mark was the first gospel ever recorded. And so this idea that Mark would be compelled to write the first gospel. Why? Well, he had a mentor. And it comes through the entirety of the book of Mark. Whenever you read the book of Mark, you're reading the stories of Simon Peter. It's the offshoot of Simon Peter. In fact, Luke was not an eyewitness of his majesty. Luke 
was a Greek. He wasn't a Jew. And he wrote the most of the New Testament. He wrote more words than the Apostle Paul. Why did Luke do that? He was a mentee. In fact, when you read through the book of Acts, the language goes from they to I and we. Where did he get the transfer from they had this happen to I and we saw this happen? Because somewhere along the way, Luke, who I believe joined Paul on the missionary journey, began to follow into covenant with them. Paul speaks, in fact, the other letters are to his mentees, Timothy and Titus. Timothy, I have left thee in Ephesus to do things. He sent him to other churches. Titus, I left thee in Crete to make elders in every church. And so this idea of connection is real. And yet all connections are not real because there's some people who like the spirit of chameleon. They'll use that word, just use it to leverage the next notch up their ladder. Will you be my mentor? Will you be my mentor? I want you to mentor me. I sat for two hours on the phone at my church parking lot with one of my mentees who was about to preach at, because of the times. And his spirit was troubled and I shook and I trembled and wept with him. And he's no longer with us. He went a different way. Very powerful preacher, pastors, church of many thousands now. Here's what Paul said. Demas was one of those. Demas was a mentee of Paul. The Bible says in Hebrews 13, obey them that have the rule over you for they watch for your soul. So what does it mean to have a mentor? What does it mean to be somebody that's mentored? Uh, I think it means that they have given you authority to cancel things in their life. All right. To have authority to give veto power. It's not a word that is thrown around to be leveraged to use a connection. When someone's mentors are always big names, then you need to be wary because there's, there's those catalyst mentors that are celebrity. <laughs> they don't know you. They just met you at a conference. And so mentoring means I know your life. You know my life. We're together. Demas, my fellow laborer. Demas, Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present age. That didn't mean just worldliness. It could have been religiosity. It could have been a new band of Epicureanism. We don't know where Demas ended up. It was just something in the age grabbed him. So following as a mentee or being a mentor, it is a relationship that must be local. It cannot be some theoretical, you know, virtual means, virtual means almost, but not quite. You can't have virtual love and virtual church and virtual mentorship. You've got to be with somebody. And then you've got to let them speak into your life and not tell you things that you necessarily want to hear. Because that's, to me, so important. So without this union of communion, then we would not have Luke writing most of the New Testament, more words than anyone. We wouldn't have Mark so compelled at the death of his mentor to sit down and pen the first gospel ever written. We wouldn't have these letters to Timothy and Titus, these communions and unions that God put together. So it's not a matter of you just running and finding it. Brother Hale is a mentor of mine. 
he's also my father-in-law. <laughs> so that's almost cheating. <laughs> my dad is my mentor, and that's almost cheating. But God has put someone else in my life, Brother J.W. Harrell, who's still alive. I'm so blessed to be able to call all three of my mentors anytime I want to. And, but he wasn't there by connection of family. It was by the Holy Ghost that we connected. And we don't miss a week without talking. Many times, two times a week. Because it's that connection that God has got to give you. If you want a mentor that God gives you, don't be looking in the limelight. Don't be looking for the big show. Look for somebody who can walk with you and talk with you and know you. Your pastor obviously has authority. Your pastor has authority. That's God-given. Bible says that they, in Hebrews 13, that they've got to give an answer for you. I don't know what that looks like yet. No pastor in here has yet given an answer to God for the people he's pastored, but the day's coming. So I, I find it so important to know the community of the kingdom and connect with someone. Seek them from the Lord. Not from just smiles and backslapping at conferences. Seek them from the Lord. And include your pastor in that story, too, because he's given authority. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you, Pastor Elm. Sister Scarlett, a gifted singer, licensed minister. Yes. Pastoring with your husband in Homestead, Florida. You're, you're an amazing young lady. The Bible talks about giving uh, double honor uh, to a bishop. When it comes to honoring our elders, what does your generation do well and what do they still need to work on? Well, <laughs> first of all, what an honor to be up here with all of you. Um, and to follow up after that is tough, um, especially since my dad just mentioned so many things that I, I had on my heart, but... <laughs> Um, <laughs> like father, like daughter. Um, you know, we love our elders. We love our elders. We admire them. We respect them. I know I love hearing an elder preach. I love hearing their stories being told. And I know my generation agrees with that. When Brother Mangan preached um, at Youth Congress, what a message it was. And he just told story after story. And it was the fit. You could feel the faith rising in the room that night. And we love to hear those things. I think it's so important to remember um, how they got to that place. Um, it's really easy to pick out a point in time and see them in this point in time and say, okay, they have all of these wonderful works and these stories and these, these things they've gone through, and they made it to the other side, and it's hard to connect with that. But when you really hear, like Bishop Hale said, his life, when he was talking earlier about, about experiencing all of that debt, how he got through that, how he prayed on his knees in prayer. He got on his knees in prayer and said, I don't know how I'm going to do this, God. They have gone through things. They've seen things. They've, they've undergone difficult seasons, lonely nights, seasons of brokenness, of questioning. They had questions too. And, and remembering that, realizing that, and it's not just enough, I think, for us to admire them or respect them, but First Peter talks about obeying your elders. And it's not enough to admire them without obeying them. And I think that 
we, when we think of their lives and we think of the things they've gone through, we have to recognize, I'm young. I haven't gone through as many things. I've had those questions that they might have the answers to. I might not understand why they're telling me to do a certain thing, but I have to approach it with humility and meekness and say, okay, they know better. And, and, and we're not uh, following them blindly. We're not obeying blindly. The Bible doesn't call for us to have blind obedience or blind faith. We have boundaries to our obedience. We have boundaries to our faith. Otherwise, we wouldn't have the word of God. The word of God is our boundary. And so, you know, these elders, they've knocked, they've seeked, they've asked, and they've had the answer given to them. And you can do that too. But sometimes we focus so much on the the door being open to us, the answer being given the finding after the seeking. But we don't realize and recognize at times, and I'm guilty of this and I'm preaching to myself, that it takes effort and energy and strength to push through the asking and the seeking and the knocking. It's not, God, how do I get through this? It's, okay, this is my question to you, Lord. How can I seek through your word to find it? And then when I think I've found the answer, let me knock at the door and see if you open it. It's a whole process, and they've done the knocking. They've done the seeking. They've done the asking. And so when you obey out of faith, not blind obedience, but obey out of faith through the boundary of his word, it's, it's, it's a beautiful relationship utilized that strengthens you. It's not, and, and my dad has taught us this, it's not a sin to be young. It's not a tragedy to be youthful and still have life to live, and still have experiences to go through, and still make mistakes. It's not a tragedy. Your youth is a gift, but it is so much more of a blessing when you utilize wisdom with youth. Brother Adrian Hood, Pastor Adrian Hood, Uh, I so admire, I know you're in full-time ministry, but I so admire Um, what your father uh, just preached and shared with us, how that uh, you're going into these challenged communities and you're shining a light in a dark place. I know you could just stay and work with your dad, but you're out on the front lines and in the trenches. And what an amazing uh, ministry that you have. And I want to follow up a little bit with uh, the question that we just asked Sister Scarlett, and that is when it comes to being, and you're a millennial, when it comes to being a millennial uh, what does your generation do well, and what is it that we can still work on as it relates to empowering the next generation, the Generation Xers? Well, let me first start off by saying what an honor it is to be up here. Um, these are some great men of God I'm sitting next to, and a great woman of God, and, uh, and family as well. But, um, and it's for that reason that I can, you know, I can be... You know, I feel like I've got to go work. I've got to get in the field because of what was put into me from my parents and from my grandparents. And um, just that spirit to go work in the harvest that, that is from them. I would say some, some things that we do well uh, from my generation and uh, the generation coming after me. It's funny because I'm born in 1997. I'm kind of the bridge between Gen X and Gen Z. <laughs> and uh, I guess one day I'm X and the other day I'm Z. I don't really know. But, um, right, yeah. But uh, we love people. We love to congregate. We love to get together. 
And I've seen that with, with our young people in our church, and I've seen it in other churches as well. When you have a new person that comes in, especially if they're around our age, um, we welcome them. We, we want to invite them over to our house. We want to get coffee with them. You know, we'll play games. We, we just, this past weekend, we had a, a student conference that was so powerful. And we stayed up till like 1.30 in the morning at the Hales house, just playing games. And there were people that I'd never seen before and uh, just some guests and, and, and young people that were there. So we love people. We love to congregate. I would say some areas where we maybe need to do better um, is in, and my dad just preached this to our church a couple weeks ago, but having staying power and, um, and, and being totally sold out and totally committed to this truth. And I, I think too often we allow ourselves to become burned out. And when you look at the elders, when you look at those that have gone on before us and those that are still with us now, they went through a lot of ups and downs. They went through a lot of mountains and valleys, and, and yet they had the gumption to keep going. They had the grit and the determination. And that's something that's always, always spoken to me. And I love history, and I love to study some things. If you go and you read about the uh, Medal of Honor, which is the highest award our military awards, if you read about the men who have received the Medal of Honor, and you read that citation that goes along with every single individual, there's always a single phrase in there that's the same through every citation. It doesn't matter what they did to earn the Medal of Honor. It doesn't matter which war they fought in. There's always one phrase in there that remains the same, and that phrase is going above and beyond the call of duty. And that's something that our elders have. That's something that those that, that can speak into our lives have exemplified, going above and beyond the call of duty. Well, I have to get that for myself. That's somewhere along the way, I have to dig in to the dirt. I have to dig in in my prayer closet, and I have to just say, I, the norm isn't good enough. The norm isn't, it, it, there, there's nothing that God can really do with that necessarily. If I'm going to build a work, if I'm going to work in the kingdom of God, if I'm going to build on top of what the elders and my mentors have built, then I've got to find that place of going above and beyond just what is asked of me from the Lord. So I, I would say that's something that we would need to do, we need to work on. And I include myself in that um, as our generation. We love the stories, as Sister Scarlett said, we love hearing the stories of our elders. Please don't ever stop. Please don't ever stop pulling us to the side or just calling us up, whatever it may be. And I have the benefit of having my grandparents. I live with them, and uh, we'll just sit around the dinner table, or where, and I just get to listen to them tell, tell me their stories from you know, being young ministers and a young pastor and just those days of growing up. And, 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 and we love those stories. We love those stories. We cherish them. And I would say we need to do e even more in learning about the great men and women of God that have gone before us. Uh, maybe some that aren't necessarily in our circle. Uh, I, I was just at General Conference a couple weeks ago, and uh, I bought a book, I bought several books about the, the history of UPCI ministry in the Middle East and in Asia, and some of these missionaries that have gone over there. And uh, I was just curious about it. I, I want to know. I want to know the, the price that's been paid. I want to know the names and the people and the sacrifice that was made to go into these difficult places around the world and to build a work, to carve out a work, uh, a work of God that's there. I don't ever want to take it for granted because if I lose sight of it and our generation lose sight of it, then that's it. And if I can, I don't want to take up a lot of time, but if I can read a passage of scripture in Deuteronomy 6 and 20, the Bible says, and when thy son asketh thee in time to come, saying, what mean 
the testimonies and the statutes and the judgments which the Lord our God hath commanded you. Then thou shalt say unto thy son, We were Pharaoh's bondmen in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders great and sore upon Egypt, upon Pharaoh, upon his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from thence that he might bring us in. He brought us out that he might bring us in to give us the land which he sware unto our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as it is at this day. So when your son comes to you and asks you, what mean the sacrifices? Why do we go to the temple to pray? Why, why, why do we have to come and constantly worship God? What mean the, the, the feasts that we have to go through every year, seven feasts in the Jewish calendar? What, what do all these things mean, Dad? Why do we have to dress and look a certain way? And they were talking about Peter. And, and Peter, I didn't know he was the most mentioned outside of Jesus in the New Testament. But think about Peter being a little Jewish boy, running up to his father. You know, after all those days, his dad takes him with him to the temple in the morning to pray. And, and finally, that curiosity that we all have as children gets the better of him. And he asks his dad, what does this all mean? Well, his dad has a divine commandment from God to sit him down and to talk to him about what it all means. Right. Now fast forward to Peter, and he's walking with Jesus, getting to ask the greatest mentor of all all sorts of questions and, and learning things and, and, just, and just gleaning things from the Lord. And all of a sudden, they're by the, 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 uh, the shore, and the Lord asks him, who do men say that I am? Yes. And all of these men around, they're laughing. Some are thinking, well, some say John the Baptist. Yeah. You know, others say Elijah, and they're laughing. At what... But here's Peter yeah. who understands something. Here's Peter who, who's been walking with Jesus, who's been walking under his ministry, who's been curious, who wants to know, who wants to understand, and he stands up and maybe the most defining moment of his whole life, he says, thou art the Christ, oh, yeah. the son of the living God. And right there, Jesus says, blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, and he gives him the keys to the kingdom. So now you fast forward to that day of Pentecost, when the Holy Ghost falls and they're all speaking in tongues and all these different nationalities begin to hear them speaking in our own language and they're marveling and they're wondering what's happening and what do they say? What meaneth this? Yes. Mm -hmm. What meaneth this? And here's Peter who's asked the very same question to his father who's grown up in this. Here's Peter who's walked with Jesus for three years and asked all those questions. What do these things mean? And now Peter can stand with those keys that God has given him and he can preach to them that first message of the church. This is that which was prophesied. So we got to get a hold of what our elders are teaching us. Ask those questions. Learn those stories. Be curious about it. And because uh, and the Lord's going to use that. The Lord's going to use you when somebody comes to you and asks you, what does this all mean? You've got to be ready to give an answer. Wow. Thank you. Thank you. So rich. Brother Urshan, our, our theme this week is greater works. And uh, when we think about the elders that have gone before and the, the fellowship and the legacy of their lives, and uh, I, I even think to that amazing message that Brother Pamer preached yesterday about the, uh, the Eiffel dilemma. And he compared, you know, the World's Fair in Paris to the World's Fair in, in Chicago and how they couldn't compete with the Eiffel Tower, so they just built a, a Ferris wheel. And it wasn't very tall, and, and afterward it was all over. They blew it up, you know. And sometimes we look at our elders and we see these Eiffel Towers. But you know what I was thinking? There's millions of Ferris wheels in the world now. 
and there's only one Eiffel Tower. So what, how can this generation do greater works when we look at these elders and these pillars and our heroes in the faith? How can this generation do greater works and what does that look like going forward? Uh, you know, uh, when we talk about the Eiffel Towers, a great message by Brother Pamer and these, these great elders, um, it's important to remember that they didn't see themselves as that when it was happening. They were so dependent on God. And they were, uh, go, they were living it out. The, when we look back on the story, we, we uh, it, have to tell the story. And I love hearing Brother Adrian and Sister Scarlett talk about hearing those stories and loving those stories. And I know from my own uh, daughters that we would talk about those stories, you know, and those, those build us. And uh, it's important. I remember Brother Tenney saying to me one time at a general conference, he said, um, find every word that your great-grandfather ever wrote and read it. And it was, it was such a, a strong admonition from the elder to me that I realized it was more than him just saying, hey, you ought to check something out. You know, check this book out. It was, yeah. it was him telling me, there's a treasure in a field, and I wow. want you to go find it. And so I, I, I did, and when I, and of course, I had read much of my great-grandfather, and that was one thing that my parents were very good at. They, they not only put the scriptures up on the doorposts of our home and throughout our house and in our daily conversations, we would, we would just talk scripture and hammer scripture out with one another. And, and, but they also did that with heritage. So we, we would have the photos of our family interspersed. I, I would ask questions, who's that person? And it would be a black and white photo. And it would be in, it would be in uh, you know, it, Persia, and it would be Andrew Urshan's parents, and so there's a story connected that comes from that question, and so stories were a big part of our life growing up, but to actually get in his writings and read it like, okay, I've got to find the treasure, I have to unlock the code, was, was a little bit different. It was different than just hearing or even telling the stories, so I started walking in my mind and in my spirit, I, I began to walk those paths with him. I would take a break to start my day, go, go to sleep and start my day. But then I would come back and before I would sleep at night, I would, I would open that book back up and I would, I would be in the ancient areas of old Persia with him and, and Russia. And it was such an enlightening thing. One of the things I remember him saying when he first received the Holy Ghost, he said, a spirit of prayer gripped us. We prayed and we prayed. And Bishop Hale described that prayer, that, that just such a call to prayer today uh, in the Word. And that's what my great-grandfather described. He said prayer gripped us. He said we would pray as soon as we'd wake up in the morning, we would pray. And we would pray on our way to work, and every break and chance we got, we would take time to pray. And on the way home from work, we would pray. And when we would go to bed at night, we would pray. And we would wake up in the night speaking with tongues, enraptured by his presence. This was what he was experiencing when he first received the Holy Ghost. And, and then he began to describe that the, through prayer and through the study of the Word, the Holy Ghost would reveal to him uh, the scriptures, and he would see that he said, We received a revelation of the mighty God in Christ, and we received a revelation of, of he said, We received a revelation of divine healing, 
And he said, before we received this revelation, we believed that God could do miracles and that we could um, take some medicine when necessary. But when we received the revelation of divine healing, it was so eye-opening. Well, that was interesting to me because I thought, well, we believe God can do miracles and we should take medicine every now and then. He's talking about something different. And God forbid we should ever drift from victories our forefathers have already won. So the greater works comes from understanding what they've already achieved and, and building on that and experiencing that for ourselves. It's not enough for them to have prayed like that. We have to pray like that. Right. And we'll meet the same God in the same way they did. Good. And, and they are these Eiffel Towers, and they are these, these larger-than-life figures, and we thank God for that. But it's important to remember that when they were experiencing that, they were just like us. You know, my, great, my, my grandfather, one of the great stories of our family is the day that he met the angel on the, doorsteps of, on the uh, front steps of Calvary Tabernacle. And this old man with a cane, uh, with a, a serpentine shape that gave him prophecies that shaped his life. He was ready to leave as pastor. And he was told, stay, this is going to be a church that experiences great revival. And you're going to be a global influence. Your voice is going to be heard throughout the world. You're going to lead leaders. And he was 30 when this was happening. So when I hear that story, I, I see my grandpa sitting on those with an angel of the Lord. But it was a 30-year-old young man who was fearful that his ministry was over before it began, and he was ready to quit, and he didn't feel like he could compete with some of the more charismatic personalities that were in his area that were taking people from his flock, and he was ready to leave. That's who he was then. He, 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 he wasn't grandpa then. He was... He was just a young preacher trying to, God, am I in your will? Mm. And it's important to understand they were just like us, and they persevered, and they prayed, and they sought God, and they, they never gave in, and that's what we have to do. And we will build on their works and see greater work. Wow. Brother Hale, um, your ministry has inspired generations of ministers. Um, but from your perspective as an elder... What does greater works look like as it relates to young ministers and millennials? I've given this some thought. <laughs> the greater works, you have to understand, does not mean greater miracles. It's greater works. So... Um, I've, I've thought about the millennial generation. Now, wait. I know they're more intelligent than my generation. And, and that's, uh, that's one of the things they're described as being more intelligent of the previous generations. And the reason, of course, is their access to technology and media, and those kinds of things. But I did look into some time ago, and I didn't know this question's coming up, uh, about millennials. There is a negative, and I hate to cast a little negative shadow here, but there's a negative 
that's given uh, to their generation. And this is out of Wikipedia. Okay. They, f <laughs> they feel a sense of entitlement without the hard work their predecessors did. Okay, brilliant. Uh, access. Now, folks, we all got to remember that there's only one source to greater works, and that's the Holy Ghost. So if this is the negative, if somehow or another we could bond to this intelligent generation a teaching on sacrifice and discipline, how in the world are, would you be able to measure how great the works will be? Because the great works is going to come if the energy and the thought is put together, um, this millennial generation has got a great promise. And uh, if, if they will pay it, the price that the previous generation paid, it's going to continue. And I'm anxious to answer some other questions because I've, I'm fired up. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Brother Elms, you, um, you talked about mentors and the mentors in your life. And, you know, we've talked about how that it's important to have mentors. And the, the question I want to ask you is, when it comes to having mentors in your life, I had an elder one time tell me, you need to have a mentor in your life that you didn't choose. Can you elaborate on that? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I've always felt like our uh, God in heaven knows what he's doing. And there's something divine about your DNA. You didn't choose your parents. And parents didn't choose their kids. And so there is something about getting these elite uh, somebodies to be our voice. I, I touched on that enough, but I want to bring it back down to the idea that those who God put around you in your life might be the one that you need to have as a mentor instead of seeking out the voices that speak things similar to what you want to hear. You know, we talked about Peter here today and Peter's striking in the scripture. But he wrote 1 Peter and it's an amazing book. Peter writes about so many things. We hear all day talking about Simon Peter. But at the end of his book, he says a, a couple very curious things. It's the very close of his first writing and we know he's going to be crucified according to tradition upside down only at his request because they wanted to crucify him on a cross right side up and he said I'm not worthy to die like my master 
He opens up his book by saying, I want you to be sure that I'm telling you what we have and given to you is not cunningly devised fables, but I was an eyewitness of his majesty. But at the conclusion of First Peter, the fifth chapter, the 13th verse, he says a couple curious things. He says, number one, the church at Babylon, which is elected together with you. Did you know you were tied into some folks situated at Babylon? which is elected together with you. Now, a lot of talk, what was that Babylon? There's no evidence that Peter went to Iraq. And most think that was the church at Rome. Rome was the Babylon at, at that day. But he said, the, the church together at Babylon, elected together with you, saluteth you. And here's the second curious thing that people may miss. Because years ago, there was this idea that if I do God's work, then he'll take care of my stuff. If I take care of God's house, then he'll take care of my house. And that's true to a point. But he's not going to take out your trash. He's not going to brush your teeth. (laughs) He's not going to clean your room. There's some practical things that must be done in life. And mentorship sometimes is very practically positioned in your life, but you may not see it because you're trying to find something somewhere out there beyond the starry sky. And Paul, I mean, Peter closes and he says, and my son Marcus also. In other words, Peter, who left, he had a wife, he had a mother-in-law, a great miracle for her. Whatever it looked like when he left his wife, whether he was, mar- he was married before he followed Jesus or afterwards, it's just kind of vague because of the length of Acts and how much it covers. But we know that there was a miracle that was performed for Peter's mother-in-law. So he had his mother-in-law jokes. I have none because my mother-in-law is a queen, beauty, phenomenal, gifted, passionate woman. And when I watched her attacked, and if you're in ministry, you're going to be attacked, okay? It comes with the territory. And I watched my mother-in-law personally attacked, people jealous of her beauty, jealous of her charm, jealous of her talent, jealous of who she was, attacked her personally and very vilely and evil. I watched it. You know what she did? She started cleaning the church bathrooms. She started vacuuming the church carpet. She said, I will be something for you, King. Well, that was mentorship to her granddaughters and her grandchildren and her daughter, too. I've got my wife vacuuming now because of that. (laughs) And she won't stop vacuuming, even when I'm taking a nap. But Peter saw it was critical to say, and my son, Marcus. In other words, if you think I've just got my mind everywhere else, as I'm wrapping up the very end of my first letter, he's not certain to get a second. He said, I want you to know Marcus is doing it too. (laughs) And so mentorship, some of it is just DNA assignment. And some of it is just following after. I've been blessed to start a program in 2010 we call it our church, the League of Extraordinary Ministers. It's LXM. 
and it's exclusive. We've probably got 28 to 30 graduates here right now. Wow. Uh, in fact, if I had the graduates stand, should I have the graduates stand yeah. on the graduates of LXM? Stand up right now all over this building. Wow. Stand up. Every on the platform, my Lord. They're, 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 they're all over. There's eight or nine of them on the platform every service here. Wow. But what I felt was that it's not just because we, I, I've been honored to pastor people who have no DNA. I mean, they would leave LXM class to a mother who was such a drunk that when she would wake up, she was angry at her son and would go in and start hitting on him out of her drunken stupor. No family in the church, and he's an LXM graduate, working for God in another state mightily. Here's the point. It's an intensive, there's a gap generation that we've got to watch out for between high school and the end of college, Good. that there's a huge wonder of what we're going to do. Can we be great? And there's a difference between education and schooling. Your education will put letters behind your name, but it won't put work and go in your hands and feet. When you're on the basketball court and somebody crosses you up, what's the guy say? You've been schooled. You weren't educated. You were just schooled. And in our churches, we can't have the theory, theoretical answers. We've got to have the altar workers. We've got the people who are praying in the altar. We've got to have those who will baptize while the preacher's counseling. We've got to have people that are out there teaching connect groups and meeting in coffee shops and walking around their college campuses, not because they're educated, but because they've been schooled. Good. And so I, there's so much I could say about that. I'm full of it. But we've got to incubate a culture of purpose and mission. And that's what a mentor's for. If they're to just tell you things that are curious and intriguing, that's not mentorship. Right. That's education. It's schooling where they take their hands and put it on your hand and, and help you do the work and they they walk you through and we in our we have fake altar services you know where we come and teach people how not to pray someone through to the holy ghost we have classes on how to baptize people why they need to hold their nose and hold their wrist and why they what you say in fact i had one of our graduates baptize an eight last uh, a couple sundays ago and when when he was done he we were having so much fun because one time he forgot to say for the remission of your sins <laughs> and I told him when he was over, I said, God still did it because it's in the name. Uh -huh. It's in the name. <laughs> but I, we've got to school the next generation. That's what mentors do. Right. And it takes time to do that. Every Monday night, we're meeting for two hours. Every Monday night, there's a, I, I won't go into that, but it's, it takes hands on and you got to fight for that time. you got to give something up to get that time. And if you're giving time to the church, I'm talking to pastors right now. If you're giving time to the church, but you're not giving any time to your children, you're missing the boat. I said you're missing the boat. You're the one that's going to save your children. Doesn't mean they're all going to be saved because we know that everyone gets their own choice. But at least they will not be lost because we didn't take their, our hands and put it on their hands. And I used to lay, sit my kids down at every family day and, pray, and ask them to pray. And I, they, they would try silent praying on their daddy. And I said, you're not scaring any devil with silent praying. He doesn't know what you're thinking. I need to hear you. 
The devil knows nothing about your prayers unless you say it loud enough for him to hear it. And I would listen for their little voices, and Scarlett would tell you all their comedic stories, how they created up words. They were just under pressure because dad had to hear their prayers. So it was like, oh, man, what do I say? Oh, Lord, hallelujah. You will never rebuke a devil with your thoughts. Wow. There's a difference between thinking what ought to think and doing what you got to think. It's both think and do. That's what mentorship is. I don't know if I answered that question, but in Jesus' name, we we got to raise up our Marcuses. And watch our Marcuses salute the church at Babylon. Wow. Amen. Just so East Wind and Cathedral of Pentecost knows, this is what we do on vacation. Yeah. <laughs> it's true, isn't it? Uh, Sister Scarlett, what does your generation look for in a mentor, specifically as it relates to uh, ladies in ministry? Um, you know, I think this generation is just eager for truth. We're eager for honesty. Uh, We don't want to be told sweet-sounding words anymore. Um, We just want to be told the truth. And we want to be told the truth in love. And I think, personally, for me, what I look for in a mentor is somebody that truly loves me, um, that wants what's best for me, God's best for me. Um, And they seek that. When I see that they care to take the time their time out for me to speak into my life. They care about my life. I can trust them to correct me. Um, and I long for that in a mentor. And this generation longs for that in a mentor to know, because the deal is that they will correct you. They will course correct you. That's what a mentor is for. And we want them to do that. Um, but we can only really receive it when we know that they love us. And so I think that's what what you really want to look for in a mentor is, first of all, somebody that loves God more than they love their own family and themselves. And, and, then, and then knowing that they love you, when they do course correct, you can trust that they're, they have a pure relationship with you. They, they're not trying to lord themselves over you. They, they have a purpose in why they're doing what they're doing. And um, pertaining, to, pertaining to women specifically, uh, you know, it's, it's a touchy subject, but it's necessary in my opinion. I look for a woman that's not afraid of submission. I think being submitted makes her more beautiful, increases her worth, and she increases her power. Um, knowing that she can be submitted and still be used mightily by God. Mm. It, it's not a weakness, and contrary to what the world wants to say, it's not a weakness, it's a strength. And it's what we are called to. And we are not called to just submit to any man. We're called to submit to our spiritual head, our authority. And that's something to remember too. But, but remembering to be submitted and, and seeing that, it, to me, it encourages me. Another thing I look for in a mentor, women specifically, is, is a woman who is unashamedly herself in God. Um, you know, I've met a lot of women that are, are reserved, soft-spoken, gentle, and it is the most beautiful, beautiful thing. I've met a lot of women who are passionate, zealous, lively, and it is beautiful. And knowing that they are called to be that right. and being confident in that call. They're not trying to fit a mold. They're not trying to reach 
society's mark of what they should be, but just knowing God's called, God's created my character, constructed my personality this way, and in the right, in the right boundary within that submission, I know this is who I'm meant to be, the confidence in it, and saying, I'm not afraid to be exactly who I'm meant to be. There are Deborahs, and, and there are Miriams, and they're different. And there are Esthers, and there are Marys, and they're different. But they're equally as powerful. We are powerful in our differences. Amen. You know, I think about the, the Tower of Babel and, and how they all spoke the same language and came from the same culture and, and had the same ideologies. And in their sameness, they grew prideful and, and they lifted, they, they thought they could outsmart God. And so God had to create differences among them and separate them, different languages, different cultures, different ideologies. And, and in their differences, they saw how much they needed a pure relationship with God. It's a beautiful thing, our differences. And so, um, you know, a woman that, that is confident in, in her distinct call, um, I, I look for that. And I think we should as women be confident in who we are, knowing that God has called us to be exactly who we are in the time that we're in. That, that famous scripture, you are called for such a time as this, was spoken to Esther. You are called for such a time, chosen for such a time as this. The way you are, the way God's designed you. Step out in that and be confident in that. And I look for, when I see women who are confident in their call, I want to learn more from them. Wow. Excellent. If I, excellent, go ahead. I just want to interject a daddy moment, okay? <laughs> uh, I reserve the right for a daddy moment. You are listening to a girl that is also a pastor's wife. She's a licensed minister, but also in South Florida, which if you don't know, there are eight to 10 million souls down there. She is the youngest, to my knowledge, hospice nurse that is every day helping people transition to the other side. And so she's not just talking, sitting here, not handling the most heavy things in life. She walks into homes all over and helps people at their time of sunset. And so you're listening to substance right there when, when you're listening to Scarlett Olivia Bonilla. Wow. Brother Adrian, how do we bridge the gap between honoring our elders and yet carving out a place for our own unique ministries? Sometimes uh, people struggle with following what's been handed to us from our elders because they feel like they've got to have their own path, their own identity, their own uniqueness, and that somehow that means blowing up the past. How do we bridge that gap where we honor our elders, we build on what's been handed to us, but yet we have that permission to be unique in who we are in the tapestry of ministries? I would say uh, be, be genuine. Be, be genuine in your, in your walk with God. Be genuine in your ministry. Um, be sensitive to the spirit of the Lord. And uh, I think one of the best ways we can, you know, show, we can honor our elders and show them that we love and care about them is, is 
is by showing that genuineness to the walk and to the call of God because that's how they were. And they can spot, they're, they're gray-headed, they're, you know, or getting up there. I mean, they can spot a fake and a pretender from a mile away. So don't pretend. Don't try and put on a performance um, because nobody's looking for a performance. They're looking for realness. They're looking for something genuine. And the way we can honor our elders while still being unique is being a genuine minister of the gospel, being a genuine altar worker, being a genuine usher, a greeter, whatever it may be, you know, do that thing and do it well and do it as unto the Lord. And uh, because then that's going to show our elders, that's going to show the older generations that here's somebody that, that it isn't just about the show, it isn't just about the fame, it isn't just about the photo ops, but this is somebody who has substance. This is somebody who has something real and, and, and they're, gonna, they're not just going to you know, do away with the past. They're not just going to tear it down. Um, it's something they can build on top of. And uh, if I can read another verse. Sure. <laughs> in, in Exodus chapter 33, uh, this is after Moses come, he's, he came down from the mountain. Children of Israel built the golden calf and mayhem ensues. And, uh, and the Lord begins to tell him, that you're going to go into the promised land. That's what he's promised. He's not going to return on his promises. You're going to go into the promised land, and I'm going to drive out all the enemies there. But I'm going to send an angel with you. I'm not going to send my spirit with you. I'm going to remove my spirit. And that's something, immediately the children of Israel, immediately Moses, they realize this is something that can't happen. We can't allow this to take place. And, uh, and so Moses sets up the tabernacle outside the camp. Now the Lord's removed his presence, he said. And he's setting up his tabernacle outside the camp. But what's interesting is God gave Moses, it was to Moses that he gave those blueprints to build it. It was to Moses that, that he was the one that was going to set it up. He was going to pitch the tent, the tent of meeting. And uh, it was Moses who was going to go in there and he was going to entreat on, on behalf of the children of Israel unto the Lord that we've got to have your presence. We can't go on without your presence, God. But he didn't go in there alone. In Exodus 33 and 11, it says, And the Lord spake unto Moses face to face as a man speaketh unto his friend. And he turned again into the camp. But it says, his servant Joshua. His servant Joshua wants you to know. The Lord wants you to know he's a servant first. His servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, a young man departed not out of the tabernacle. Hmm. And I, I was reading a little bit about it, and some say Joshua might have been in his 50s at that time. He may not have been a, what we would consider a young man, but the Bible specifically mentions that he's a servant and a young man because what young men and women do is serve. That's what they're known for doing is serving unto the Lord, is serving that generation before them. Joshua served Moses faithfully and was with him, but he departed not out of the tabernacle. So even when Moses was going... And he was to deliver the word to the people and continue to, to talk with the Lord. Here is this young man. Here is this servant, Joshua, who just says, I, I just can't leave the presence of God. I've got to stay here. I've got to have that staying power. I, I, I've seen what God has done for Moses. I've seen what my mentor, the walk that he's had. And I, I've got to get that for myself. Mm. And, and, and obviously, when we read through Scripture and you go through 40 years of wandering the wilderness then you come to the precipice for the second time. The children of Israel come to the precipice of the Jordan River, getting ready to cross over. And it's, it's a new generation because the old generation 
they couldn't pass over. And so now they're all died out. And it's this new generation that's standing there. And who is it that's going to lead them into the promised land? Who is it that's going to lead them to conquer those territories, those new territories, and to drive out? It was somebody who long ago said, I'm not going to leave the presence of Almighty God. I'm going to dwell here. I'm not going to depart. And if that's what we want as millennials or Gen Zers, if that's what we want to have, if that's the example that we're going to follow, then we need to stay in the altar. We need to stay in that hot presence of Almighty God and having that, that, that prayer closet and building it up. And, uh, and that's something that the elders are going to see. And they're going to recognize and say, okay, here's somebody that because they don't want to depart from the tabernacle, I'm not worried about them. I'm not worried about them going to the left or to the right because they've got it. They're digging deep. And um, praise God for that. Amen. And I would just say, you know, you, in order to have that staying power, it really requires some consecration with the Lord. Mm-hmm. And that's something that we look at our elders. They have that. And it's like uh, I love sports. I'm good for a sports analogy about 20 times a day. But there's an interview that I watched with Nick Faldo. He's a golfer, professional golfer, and Jack Nicklaus. And he was talking to Jack Nicklaus and saying that when he was a young boy in England, one of the ways that he, he picked up the game of golf and started to learn was by watching the game's greats at that time and how they would swing the club and how they would turn their hips, you know, to get technical with it and, and how they would hold their hands out when the club was way out here. And he would go out and emulate that. Mm. And he would try and, 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 and do it to the best of his ability, just as he had watched it. And... Uh, and I think we can do that as well. I think that's a must. Look at what the elders have done, how they pray, how they fast, how they walk, how they walk in the altars and lay hands on people and, and reading their stories and listening to the things that they have to say and getting that for ourselves because I can't remember who preached it, but I've heard it somewhere that uh, in order for David to fight Goliath, he had to put into the pouch so he could take out. You can only take out what you've already put in. What you put so in. we can put in those things that our elders have done. We can pattern ourselves after their ministry, but at the same time, we have the natural giftings that God has given to us. So while we're honoring our elders, while we're, we're, we're praying and fasting, while we're trying to be like them in many respects, there's still that confidence that we can have that God has given us our own talents, our own abilities, and under the precious blood of Jesus and the spirit of the living God, those two merge into something beautiful and concrete. And that's the confidence that you can walk forward with, honoring your elders, but you are unique. You have a unique ministry. Amen. Wow, so good. Bishop, I I wanna close with you because we started with you. And this is our last question. I've had the honor in my life to, to work with my dad in ministry for 40 years. And my dad uh, has told me, he said, son, when you would, I always had a lot of ideas. I wasn't always great at following through, but I had a lot of ideas. I'd give them to him, and then I'd go preach somewhere. And I thought just giving him an idea was plenty, you know. He's like, well, who's going to do it, you know. But uh, I, remember him, I remember him telling me that when I would come up with some new idea, and say, you know, why don't we do this, Dad? He would think through what's the worst thing that can happen. And when he thought that through and figured out how we would recover from it, he would say, okay, let's try it. (laughs) So here's my question to you as we conclude this panel today. How do we trust the next generation 
with this treasure that's been given to us in earthen vessels, how do we trust them to allow them to develop and to give them space to fall and to recover? You know, Brother Myers, um, we in America depend on the young generation to protect us. We're actually leaning on young men, 18 and 19 years old that's coming, and women to fight our battles, our wars. Um, but, 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 but they've been trained, is what I think. I, I was in a meeting, I was called, there's about 70 or 80 preachers, young preachers mostly, from all over America. Uh, they invited me, they wanted me and one other elder to meet with them for a couple of days. And they set a chair out just like this. And then they would, was a ring around us and start popping questions. And uh, 15 years ago, 15 years ago, and one of the young men that arranged this and organized it uh, asked me the question, what basically what you're saying. And he said, uh, Brother Hale, what do you see the church looking like? And is it going to survive the next 15 years of apostolic um, direction. Well, uh, it, it just hit me real quick. Absolutely, it's going to survive. Now, that was 15 years ago, so that means I was prophesying about yes. right now. Yes. <laughs> and uh, I told him, I said, absolutely, it's going to survive. It's going to thrive. And the reason, there's two reasons for it. Number one is God has never, ever let his people be without a prophet. Never has. He's always raised up a prophet who <laughs> that will speak his word to the generation that, that he's addressing. Okay, that's number one. It always will have a preacher, and he's going to be raised up right out of the group. And number two, the church is going to survive because the head of the church is Jesus, and the head of the church is alive. And if the head's alive, the body is alive. Wow. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Okay, so the man that asked me that question, I hate to say this, he didn't survive. Mm. He succumbed to the culture and that type of thing. But the church of the living God is moving on. Wow. And let me tell you something. If Jesus don't come in the next 10 years, 
You're not going to have a weak church because you've got, you got prophets right now that are being raised up. Jesus. And we're going to trust them because that's what happened to us. That's how we got to where we are right now. Come on. Is that somebody trusted us. Amen. We're going to close, Bishop. I'm going to ask you to pray over everybody. Would you do that? Hallelujah. The Lord, my God, I come to you right now and thanking you, oh God, for the covering that you give, Lord, to your preachers, to your saints, to everyone that you've called. I thank you, oh Lord, for the arms that's been put about us right now not only protecting us, but giving us strength when we don't have strength. When we're walking through wilderness, you still promise you'd give us strength, and we believe that right now. We're seeing a dark, dark future, Lord, if it's without you, but not with you, because you're the light, and you're going to give us strength and power and light to take us through. Bless now this people, Yes, I pray in the name of Jesus, and give us a great service tonight in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Let's give all of our panelists a big hand.